Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for Letters to the Thessalonians. And it is encouragement for living in the end times. We are really going to see that in our lessons today. Oh, this is for lesson 9 and 10. I am starting on page 44. It's all about love. Oh, well, we have two lessons to cover. And the second one is on rapture, which could um, create more discussion and questions and be a longer lesson. So while we don't want to rush, rush through lesson nine, it's all about love. Um, just kind of pay attention to keep moving. I don't think there's much to really get bogged down in that lesson. So <clears throat> if you move along quickly, that is all right. So it's all about love. Let's jump right in at the top of page 45 and ask the question. After you say the title, um, it's all about love. What does Paul express about brotherly love in verses 9 and 10? And someone will tell you what that verse says. Paul said, you already know about brotherly love because you've been taught by God to love one another and you are doing it in the entire region. It's just great to see Paul's encouragement and acknowledgement, and uh, and yet he's going to say, do it more, right? Paul uses two words, Philadelphus and agapao, and we looked up the um, two words that created the word Philadelphus, philos, as um, the Greek definition is dear, fond, friendly, and adelphos is brother. So ask for those definitions and then uh, based on these definitions, ask them, how are we to view fellow believers? <clears throat> you can ask, I mean, just read the question. Someone can answer it, but perhaps if one person answers, you might, you know, you know acknowledge and encourage them, thank them for their answer. Don't make them think they gave a wrong answer, but ask for someone else to, you know, how did anybody else say it any differently? Let's just hear other comments on how we are to view fellow believers. And after a little bit, that doesn't need to be a major discussion. Oh, I should tell you what I said. Um, based on Philos and Adelphos, we should view fellow believers as family who are dear to us, and we should be fond of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be fond of them, even if you don't know them very well, have a connection with them. I, I have enjoyed that. Based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and the meaning of Philadelphia as well as agapao, how would you describe the way we are to love fellow believers. So ask that question, and this is also a discussion question. So one person might answer, and then um, don't make them think that they've answered wrongly. You know, encourage them and be appreciative of the answer, and um, ask for, you know, anybody else to share their, their answers as well. I said, 
God says, love fellow believers as dear friends and love them with agape, which is unselfish, unconditional love. And we should think the best of them and do the best for them. So just um, how are, what's the way to love fellow believers as dear friends and as God loved them then unselfishly. I have highlighted the next uh, comments in italics. Paul has communicated to his dearly beloved that they are practicing this love already. His main point is that they do so even more. Now, that should not be a surprise to anybody. That is one of the main themes of this letter, and I am excited about it. And um, perhaps you have learned the word that we're about to talk about. Um, This should be a little bit of a review for those who have uh, looked this word up before. What is the Greek word for excel, which we also saw translated as increase in a previous lesson. (laughs) Page 35. Sorry for my mistake in that page number there. Should have been page 35. So excel is the Greek word parasuo, and it means abound, go above and beyond, be abundantly supplied. It was in my lecture last week. So... As you see on the top of page 46, this is not the first time or the last time that Paul uses extravagant language to encourage believers to live out their faith. This letter is a pep talk. And then we move to the next question. How does Paul say that brotherly love is shown to others according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12? I have these notes. We are to love fellow believers, um, love one another, love all the brothers, And we do that by, according to verse 11, seeking to lead a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your hands, walking properly among unbelievers, and not being dependent on anyone. Now, you know that would not apply to a two-year-old. They need help. So this is talking to those who are able to um, contribute and help and do. Now we're going to look at the second letter to the Thessalonians. Paul addressed brotherly love and daily conduct in his second letter. So what were his comments in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 through 15? You can think about how you prefer to talk through this chart, whether you want to talk through it according to rows going across, or if you'd rather do it going through columns. I think that going down one column at a time might be the easier way, but you get to make that decision. So I'm going to go down the row, the down the column. What to do? Verse six: Keep away from brothers who are walking irresponsibly. Keep away from brothers. Keep away from believers, Christians who are walking irresponsibly. Verse seven: Imitate Paul. And how? What did he do? He labored night and day. And I assume that that is with his tent making and whatever other work he had to do to help to contribute and take care of himself. He, we know that he was um, preaching late into the night one night, but that, that was because he was getting ready to leave the next day. So I don't think that that is always referring to his um, preaching ministry. But he could have been 
laboring by caring for and counseling and talking to people, you know, one-on-one, which ministry does um, go. It, it could be 24-7, but God knows when to, to rest us as well. Um, what to do? I didn't write the verse number for this one, but I have quietly work. Eat your own food. Don't grow weary in doing good. Kind of connects to what I was saying just a second ago. And then from verses 14 and 15, what to do? Warn others as a brother. Warn them as a brother. So if someone is needs a warning, remember this is your dear family member. Warn them as a beloved, as a brother. Middle column. Why to do this? Why to um, love the way we love and have the daily conduct that we do? We are not living according to... Oh, sorry. That's... <laughs> this comment was connected to verse 6 when it said, Keep away from brothers walking irresponsibly. Why? Because they are not living according to the teaching from Paul. So I did have a row, and that's why you might prefer to go through your rows. Um, so it, it still fits in this middle column. Why do you do what you do? Um, don't be a burden on other believers, and do be an example to others. And then um, I have, in connection with the worn as a brother, why do that? You do it, this sounds really bad, doesn't it, when we just say it, so that he may be ashamed. But it's to bring his the concern to his attention so that he can repent and correct his behavior and pursue holiness and walk according to God's way. And then, very specifically in the third column, what not to do. Don't be irresponsible. Don't eat unless you pay for your food. <laughs> Don't steal somebody's food. Don't take advantage of them. Doesn't mean don't don't receive what's being offered to you as a gift. You certainly can do that. Um, Paul says, if you don't work, don't eat. Again, this is considering the problem that they were going through, which is described in the paragraphs below on page 46. And... Um, this is all about not taking advantage of, not defrauding your fellow believer. Don't be irresponsible, as in not working at all, and don't interfere with another's work. And then um, my last comment in the what not to do is don't associate with um, the one who's doing something wrong. But don't treat them as an enemy. You do treat them and warn them as a brother. All of this would have had much more context for the Thessalonians who were experiencing particular things. And these um, instructions need to be understood um, at, in that time. Now, they are applicable now, but they are not a clear black and white, like, don't eat unless you pay for your food. 
I mean, that does not mean that you need to pay when you for your food when you are invited d- to dinner by a friend. Okay, on page 47. How would you imply the instructions to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands to your own life today? Remember the reasons Paul gave these instructions. So we're trying to go from then to now. And what is the big picture overall thing? I will share just my my comments. Um, how do you lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands? Be gracious, be patient, don't pick fights, take care of yourself and family. I said don't be an alarmist. <laughs> and like everything's not a crisis. I mean, it, there may be a lot of crisis. It may be a crisis, but don't be the boy who cries wolf. Um, that's an alarmist. And so we should make wise decisions as well in our personal lives. Those will have a ripple effect. Um, and I also have noted our behavior must be the outflow of agape, thinking of the other person and doing good to them. So if tragedy strikes your, your home, your being, your health, your job, I mean, if there's something out of the blue that's tragic and challenging, then Um, we believers want to support the one going through that trial. And the one going through that trial can ask for help. But there may be a time for that help to end. There should be, hopefully, a time for that help to end when the crisis has finished. Um, Some people need more help understanding boundaries. And... um, Either boundaries so that they don't ask for too much help or boundaries so that they're not always answering and giving more help to someone than they should. And that's not on the page, but I thought I'd just say that. The last question on the page. How do the instructions in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 5-15 display the gospel to unbelievers? And remember, that is what Paul has in mind as the Well, I don't know if you could say it's absolutely the ultimate thing because loving someone is God's command to us and displaying the gospel to unbelievers is also our heart. So I don't know that you should say one thing. I don't know that I should say one thing is more important than the other. They are both totally important. So, display the gospel to unbelievers. How do does our good behavior and our brotherly love show this? It shows that we love and we care and we have goodwill towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we don't really know them. I mean, that's there is a love to someone because we belong to the Lord, and hopefully that will be seen by those who are outside of this family. Like, oh, wow, I want to be in that family where they don't even know each other, but they care about each other. And there should be unselfishness. We shouldn't be greedy. We should help each other. And we, um, again, how do we, how does this display the gospel to unbelievers? As they're looking at us, let our interaction with each other not allow unbelievers something negative to say about Christians. But we know they see 
um, fighting among denominations, and there's they see difficulties, and they're like, well, why do I want to be a part of that? It happens. Let us not be a part of that. And so I have my uh, comments here as this lesson comes to an end. The way we live our lives is an indication of our love for others. Respect, sensitivity, and individual responsibility are expressions of love. And these are things for us to remember all the time, everywhere we are, at church, in Bible study. <laughs> Let's have respect and sensitivity and individual responsibility, even as we are gathering together and discussing things. And then, you know what, this goes and we are to behave this way towards those who are outside of our uh, family of God as well. Who knows who you are talking to when you're on the phone with customer service and you are trying to work out an issue. How are you behaving then? Um, so, um, brotherly love, it's all about love. And the first and second commandment, love God and love one another. And we are to show love to... So, Paul has emphasized love to fellow believers. But that does not... Uh, and so there are specific behaviors that need to be addressed. And then we are also to show love to unbelievers. Second commandment. And hopefully that will lead for some discussions and they will find out that we have got a great hope. On page 48, we have hope for the future. Those of us who understand, those of the family of God, who under, um, interpret scripture according to this dispensational view, will declare that we have the hope of rapture. It is quite an amazing and wonderful hope. Well, I am still on earth to give this audio prep. And if you're listening, you are still on earth. And then when you gather together, if you're still here, if we're still here, let's talk about what could happen any day. I will tell you a funny thought that I've had that there's no way for me to pull off. And I would not want to scare anybody terribly. But um, in our classroom at, in, in the, at church... I, it's crossed my mind, like, if there was, just for fun, um, perhaps if I weren't in the room and I leave a note on the blackboard that says, see you in seven years, because I've been raptured. That could be a mean joke, and I don't want to be a mean joke. That might not be brotherly love. Like I said, I don't want to scare anybody <laughs> and uh, trouble them in their faith. Um, we want to know what we are anticipating and look forward to it together. So, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, who are the Thessalonians concerned about? Just read that question and then wait for somebody to answer it because there's the answer and they're just really going to, they'll probably say, those who are asleep. I mean, they may summarize it or they may read the whole thing. So just let them... Let somebody answer the question. And then we do need to draw attention to this fact. Sleep is a metaphor for death. And the sleep only refers to the body. So what we're saying is there is not a soul sleep. And I didn't use that phrase in the book here. 
but some do think that there is a soul sleep. But instead of that, 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us what happens to our souls. What happens to our souls at the time of death? Paul says the soul is out of the body and present with the Lord. So absent from the body and present with the Lord. So we're, we're highlighting the soul being separate and out of the body at death unless rapture happens to those who are alive. But we're not there yet. Why does Paul want believers to know these things? Uh, so draw their attention to that next question. Ask the question, and then like we did on the first one, just pause, and I expect they will read, or they'll summarize, they'll give the answer that is the answer to that question. Why does Paul want believers to know these things? So that they, and that us too, may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So praise God that we have hope. Um, Ephesians 2.12 states that unbelievers do not have hope. They are without hope. And you see that there were those um, back in the time of Paul that um, had no hope. And they wrote it on their tombstone. I don't even care. Wow. It just... It's, it's so sad. At the top of page 49, what is the basic truth that's critical to our perspective on the death of Christians and regarding future things? Pause. They'll answer. It's critical to believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus died and rose again. I think that you should read um, the comments in the the first paragraph of the comments in the box. This is from Dr. John Walverd and Dr. Mark Hitchcock. If we accept what the scriptures teach about the first coming of Christ and put our trust in him, then there will be planted in our hearts an earnest desire to see the Savior, and the truth of his coming for us will be exceedingly precious. So that is what I hope will be stirred up through this lesson is a, a positive anticipation of seeing Jesus. And that's what the next question asks about. Consider your own salvation and describe your desire to see Jesus. So you can read that. People will be looking at their notes. They'll pause. They won't really want, they might not be ready to jump right in with their answer. You can rephrase the question, how would you describe your desire to see Jesus? Um, and so this is a little bit of uh, personal testimony, but it's also prompting a forward-looking anticipation to Jesus. So I said, thank you, Jesus, for loving me, for coming, living, dying, rising, and telling me that you're coming back. So this turned into a prayer, not really a... A statement. Um, help me continue to know you more now through your word so that I will long to see you um, more. And um, I also just, as I was thinking about seeing Jesus, I was like, well, the hard times here do highlight that Jesus is going to uh, get me out of the hard times. <laughs> Be, being with him, he's the one that's going to make it better, all better. 
Now we're getting into some of the details of the rapture passage. The Thessalonians were ready and waiting to see Jesus. And they wondered, what will happen to our loved ones who have preceded us in death? And when will it happen? What's going to happen to those who've already died? When's that going to happen? So what is the comforting news that Paul communicates? Let's do something different on this one. Let's have four different people. So just go down, go around the circle and um, have one person read one bullet point. What's the comforting news that Paul communicates? Even so, God will bring with him Jesus. Oh, well, God will bring with Jesus those who sleep in Jesus. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Fourth point, and so we will always be with the Lord. After that has been answered, which of the statements above is most comforting to you? Well, they're all great, aren't they? But perhaps for me, just in that moment, the most comforting and meaningful is the last one. We will always be with the Lord. There's a we, meaning we are together. And I am so excited that that day is coming where I will be united with those who have already died. And then I will also be with those that I see faces right now. And we will all be together always with Jesus and in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit. So Paul is talking to those who are concerned about their loved ones who died. So we mention on the top of page 50 that grief over the death of someone is absolutely appropriate. We have hope that we're going to see our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, our family members in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be sad right now. Um, So grief over the death of someone is absolutely appropriate. And scripture indicates that it's right to look for God's comfort and compassion during a time of loss and pain. I think it is in Ecclesiastes, and I did not look this up at all, but something like, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of, um, it probably says merriment or something. And I think the contrast is, it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Well, which one's a little bit more exciting to go to? But the point is that going to the funeral makes you think about death and eternity, life after death. And reflecting is a good thing. So um, better may not necessarily mean easier, but it is important to to consider and acknowledge and think about death and those who don't, um, I guess unbelievers who don't, who just don't want to think about death and life after death, they are, they're just trying to not face facts. I actually did have a conversation with someone one time and I'm like, what do you think is going to happen to you after you die? And he said, I don't think about death. I don't think about like what's going to happen to me when I die. And he, I mean, he made it clear. He wasn't fussy, but he just made it clear. Not something that he thought about. He didn't want to think about it. Well, we are thinking about a good thing. And Paul gave more details about Jesus' return. 
the key phrase used in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to describe the anticipated return of Christ. So I'm saying the phrase used in these two letters, the key thing is the coming of the Lord. Paul tells us that when Christ comes for his saints, they will be caught up to meet him in the air. So we looked at these two um, words, phrases that are in our translations. Coming is the Greek word parousia. And the definition is coming, arrival, presence. Um, I've also just heard that the it to a modern Greek right now, this word means has the idea of appearance, like appearing. And you may have heard that phrase used, like when uh, at Jesus appearing. So parousia is a particular word. It's helpful when that word shows up. And then caught up is the Greek word harpazo. And um, <laughs> I just happened to, I noted this because it made sense and it was intriguing to me. This word in the sentence harpazo is um, indicative future, passive, meaning it's done to you. And it's first person plural. So we, this is going to happen to us, first person plural. Um, and what is the Greek definition for harpazo? The first word that I have is to be seized. Uh, forcibly take someone or something to snatch, seize, take away. And I recently heard this um, rapture described as an evacuation. Dr. Michael Flack called it that. This is an evacuation. This is a rescue and how true. And, and that just, we, we know about evacuating for a hurricane um, or for, I guess, a bomb threat in a building or something. You know, there's a danger and you evacuate. You got to hurry up and get out. And so um, that was such a good word to describe what is going on at Rapture, which we're going to get to on the last page. So at the top of page 51, what is the order of the details that occur at this event based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17? I recommend one person in your group just read their whole list because people might have not had the same numbered things. So we won't try to go around the, the circle for this one. Here's what I have. First, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. Second, there's the archangel's voice. Third, trumpet of God. Fourth, dead in Christ rise first. Fifth, those still alive are caught up together in the clouds. Caught up together with the ones who were dead in Christ and rose first. I didn't write all that. I just am explaining it. Sixth, meet the Lord in the air. Seventh, the eternal result is we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so talk through that, and now we keep talking about more things. And I'm pretty much just letting the scriptures speak for themselves, right? I don't have a lot of explanation of one thing or another. It just, it's just laid out there according to what Paul said, which he said to us by revelation from the Lord. 
But I want to highlight the first sentence of the italicized paragraph. There are many other scriptures that refer to Jesus coming, or we could say return, but some refer to his first coming, and others refer to his coming to judge unbelievers, and others refer to his coming to reign as king on earth. So I could take out the word coming and I could use return each one. I'm not trying to confuse you about that. I'm just saying that I'm that to say coming here is not ah uh, that's my word. It's just the word I chose, but you could use return. Okay, but the main reason that I am highlighting this is not to confuse, but just to highlight that everything in scripture does not refer to the exact same event. So we had first coming, which was his birth and life, and then coming to judge unbelievers. That is a particular part of his second coming and his return, but that's not happening at rapture. And then um, coming to reign as king on earth. That is his return to earth. That's different from rapture. And I want to give one more example of why everything doesn't refer to one and the same event. Jesus came. We, we look back at his first coming when he was born and lived and, and died. And the Old Testament prophesied about that. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 prophesied about the suffering of the Messiah. And Micah 5 prophesied that uh, the ruler would be born in Bethlehem. But we don't, back then they, they might have thought about this, but I don't think they did. Um, you don't smush those two events together and say, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and he suffered and died as a baby. So that would be merging all the events into one moment, like his birth. And that's not how it all played out. So there are there were many things that happened in uh, order and in God's plan at Jesus' first coming. And there are many things that are going to happen in the future regarding Jesus' second coming. And we're talking about this particular event where he comes in the air to resurrect those who are dead in Christ and take believers before tribulation and antichrist and all that jazz which again we're going to get to on the next page it's hard to keep from jumping ahead so now i was talking about this paragraph in the middle of page 51 and we're going to get back on track on page 51 with the last sentence of that paragraph the passage that we should consider which refers to his coming for his saints which we call rapture is found in 1 Corinthians 15. And I really, I, I came to this thought the first time that I was teaching through these letters to the Thessalonians. But it would be so nice if we could refer to the rapture as the gathering. Because we are being gathered with those who are dead in Christ. We're being gathered with all the believers who are alive right now. We're being gathered together with Christ to go and be with God in heaven. So, um, I, I mean, every now and then it might be called the gathering, but I think that would be a pretty nice name 
to refer to the rapture. So we are referring to this um, gathering. And 1 Corinthians 15, 20 sets the stage and says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You can go around the circle to cover the information in these verses. Somebody can pass if they don't want to. That's probably going to be the easiest way to do this. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23 tells us, what are we looking for here? In Adam all die, and in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, which was what is in verse 20, and then at his coming, which is the word parousia, those who belong to Christ. So that verse totally coordinates with the um, 1 Thessalonians 4 passage that we're looking at. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have? Um, what, body, what kind of body will they have when they come? is what my translation said. And I was like, what does that mean? And it, it is not the same word that is used for Jesus coming, parousia. It's actually a different Greek word, which is used to mean like come or go. And it, those are not different words. So can I come to your house? Can I go to your house? Um, like That's the same. I'm, I can use either word, meaning I'm going to get from my house to your house. Hey, I'm coming to your house today. So what kind of body will believers have when they come, when they go, when they're raised? Because that's what the question is. How are the dead raised? And so Paul is talking through this passage about the resurrection of a Christian and what's going to happen. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, and that was Adam, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly man, that's Jesus, and he is the man who came from heaven, the son of God who came to earth, and lived as a man, and then what image did he have when he was resurrected? He had a glorified body. His, his body was different. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. There is a mystery going on. And Paul um, reminds us. Again, this matches what's being said in 1 Thessalonians 4. We will not all fall asleep. So not every believer in Christ is going to have a mortal bodily death. <laughs> Sounds really weird to kind of say that. Um, but we will all be changed. So those bodies that died and our bodies are asleep waiting for resurrection and then the bodies that are alive, like my body's alive right now, both bodies, all, <laughs> are going to be changed. And that's a comfort as well. And how does that happen? The very next verse he says, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two, In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet... The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. This also is matching the uh, comments that are made in 1 Thessalonians. Uses different words a little bit, but even the uh, caught up being that forcible snatch sees. Uh, it's a quick thing. You get the idea of quickness there. And then here in 
1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. There's a trumpet that's mentioned. Um, so Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 15 um, are a little bit summarized at the top of page 52. Not totally, but... As you can see what I say, when you look at 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians together, two phrases paint a picture of an almost instantaneous occurrence. Caught up refers to a strong, irresistible action, a snatching away of something, a removal from one place to another. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians, twinkling of the eye is the phrase used. So those comments lead to the next question. Why do believers need to be snatched away from the earth? What's the rush? What do they need to be evacuated from? What does 2 Peter 2.9, so we have three verses. What does 2 Peter 2.9 tell us? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And so he rescues the godly. And he keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. They are being held um, until they get their final judgment and punishment carried out. What does Revelation 3.10 tell us? Because you obeyed my command about persevering, I will keep you from the hour of testing that will come on the earth to test those who live on the earth. So there is going to be what Jesus called, through John in the Revelation, the hour of testing. And it will come on the earth, and it will test those who live on the earth. And Jesus is telling believers in the church, I'll keep you from that. And then what does Daniel 12.1 tell us about the time to come for Daniel's people? There will be a time of stress, unparalleled. Um, there's never anything like it in the history of the nations. I know I paraphrased somehow on that verse. So there is a time coming for the Jewish people, but it's not going to be just the Jews who experience this, but they will experience it. And it will be like nothing ever that has happened before. As you can see, I've just given you the three key scriptures with reasons for God to rescue believers and resurrect the dead in Christ before the seven years of terrible suffering during what is known as the tribulation. So the tribulation in these three verses is not, there. that word is not used, but it would be the trials, the hour of testing, and the time of stress. And I'm sh I think that your um, translations probably have some other phrase. I just can't remember what the other kind of more common phrases in Daniel 12.1. So, I am looking forward to being rescued from the worst time ever. And um, we looked at the end of our lesson at one more beautiful, comforting passage that parallels 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's really fun when I uh, learned this and saw that there is an almost exact parallel between John 14, 1, 3 and the rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians. What good news did Jesus give his disciples that made them anticipate his return? 
This was at the Last Supper. Just think of when he was telling them this. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So you can even hear when you just read that and think of it and think of rapture as Jesus is explaining this. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to get you with me. And then we're going to go, you know, that, that where I am, you may be also. I'm going to take you to the place that I'm going right now. So that helps us see we are headed to heaven any second. Um, so at the very end, if you haven't already kind of been talking about this, you can um, end with this question. As we noticed earlier, Paul's reason for writing about this event was to comfort believers. What is your reaction to the subject of rapture now? Um, Ready, but also praying for those who are not ready. I can't wait for myself, but I'm thankful that God's timing is perfect. And I am thankful that every day that he waits is a day that more people are added to his family right now who will be rescued. I also have seen um, a very... Um, sweet thing, but also a, a it could even be an emotional thing for those who have family members that they know are not believers. And rapture can be a challenging topic to talk about because we want our loved ones to be ready for Jesus at rapture. That we know that is best for them. Um, so that could come up into the discussions. Um, another thing that I have seen emotionally is like, ah, uh, that those who are an anticipating rapture, that they're anticipating seeing their loved ones who have already died. And there is a, just a, a great joy and hope, but it, it could be a very emotional <laughs> joy and hope that comes up for some. So, uh, and then there are those who are just like, this is maybe a new thing or they've never been taught it or, um, they don't have a clue what we're talking about and just uh, deer in the headlights look. So there could be a lot of different type of reactions to rapture. And I guess it's good that I'm saying this. Hope you haven't turned me off yet. That, um, just, just, uh, be prayerful as you're going into it that, and be aware as you're like looking around the group of who is uh, reacting in different ways. And those who have recently lost loved ones, this could even be more emotional uh, or could be more joyful. I know for me that it is a, a very joyful anticipation of being reunited always with first Jesus and then my mother and my other family members who are already um, absent from the body and present with the Lord. Okay, so I hope that it is also going to be an enjoyable lesson for you and not hard for you to lead. So thank you for, for leading. God bless you. May his word be handled accurately and with joy. That's all. Um.